Just One More with Joanna and Daphne, a fitness and nutrition podcast for normal people who want to be more awesome. If you have trouble deciding between Just One More Cupcake and Just One More Kettlebell Swing, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joanna Shawflam. I'm an actor, comedian, and a normal person, and Daphne is not here today because we have a special guest who I'll introduce in a second. Um, and before we get started, remember to talk to your doctor or medical practitioner before starting any workout or nutrition plan or anything else related to the parts of your body because we're going to be talking about parts of your body today. And you should talk to your doctor before you do anything weird. Uh, so the person who's going to be talking about weird body stuff with us uh, is our guest, Dr. Gabby Prajdakis. Hi, Gabby. Hello. Thanks for uh, having me. Of course. Uh, I was telling Gabby before we started recording that I think she is the first like scientist scientist we've had on the show. We've had various doctors and credentialed people of other kinds, but uh, welcome first scientist. Uh, so, uh, to ask my usual impertinent question when we have guests, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> so, uh, my name's Gabby and I am a postdoctoral researcher, um, in microbiology and immunology at Stanford. Um, so basically what that means is I did my PhD research and then kept on going to do another research project, um, after that in a new lab. Um, where I study the gut microbiome. Cool. So like an extra nerdy scientist. Exactly. Extra credit. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, uh, I am so excited to talk to you about the gut and the microbiome because I feel like this is an area that's like starting to pop up in sort of like pop science or like I think uh -huh. of it as like tiny quote unquote science articles that appear in like women's magazines I also totally. hate the phrase women's magazines, but whatever. That's <laughs> what the industry calls them. Uh, but you are an actual scientist actually studying this stuff. So I uh, wanted to um, have you give me and our other normal people guests sort of an overview of like what we're talking about when we're talking about the gut and the microbiome, because I have a feeling we're only going to hear more about these things in the next phase of Absolutely. our life. Um, so... Uh, what, just to start out super simple, what part of our bodies are we talking about when we say the gut? Yeah, it, so in terms of it's your kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, it can, um, it can sort of refer to a few different things. Um, sort of mostly it can be kind of any part of your GI tract. Um, a lot of times, you know, gastrointestinal tract. Exactly. That's hard um, to say. Like, you know, kind of the getting punched in your gut or whatever. Also, you can think of as the stomach or the intestines. Um, but really, most of the time in our field, when we're talking about the gut and the gut microbiome, we're actually thinking about the large intestine or the colon. So sort of pretty far uh, down your digestive tract, because that's where most of the microbes in your gut live. And just for those of us who haven't looked at like a uh sketch of your digestive system for a while the like basic order is like stomach and then where do we go from stomach yeah then there's a few parts that you may or may not have heard of like the, the cecum and the ileum things like that um, but then after that comes your small intestine and then your large intestine and then your anus um, so it's basically really towards the end after your stomach and you know your intestines is where a lot of the um, sort of you know in continued digestion as well as absorption of nutrients and things like that are happening. Cool. So what is the microbiome? It makes me think of like, um, like a biodome or like some of these <laughs> other, like, like a conservatory of plants, but inside my large intestines. 
Totally. Well, that's kind of a fun image for it. But just instead of thinking of the plant, thinking of lots of little microbes. Um, so <laughs> really what it is, when we use that term, you're actually, you'll probably hear me use, sometimes use the term microbiota and sometimes the term microbiome. Um, and so the your gut microbiota is the set of organisms that live in your gut. So that can be, you know, mostly we're thinking about um, bacteria, but um, there's also uh, viruses in there um, and other, you know, sort of eukaryotes or, you know, parasites, things like that, but healthy ones, <laughs> yeast, um, fungi, things like that. But basically in your gut, um, you have about 100 trillion microbes that are just living there, coexisting, breaking down your food and sort of can be thought of as sort of this additional kind of organ going on in your gut. Wow. And then so when we use the term microbiome, that's actually capturing the idea of both the organisms and sort of everything they're doing. So kind of all the functionality. So like their genes and um, the products they're producing and all of that is sort of that whole world is the microbiome. Now I'm going to do that annoying radio thing where I say that was 100 trillion with a T, except that trillion <laughs> is like so many. Like uh, that's sort of a mind blowing thing to think about. Uh, like, I feel like that's a, a science thing that people, uh, like, really get into is, like, um, how many of a thing there are in us because it's hard for us yeah. to think of ourselves as any more than just, like, one me. But a hundred trillion, that's a yeah. lot. Yeah, and to put it in perspective, um, we actually have ten times more microbial cells in our body than we do human cells. Whoa. So, Yeah. <laughs> So there's like 10 trillion, you know, cells in our body. Um, so, you know, in terms of number of cells, we're more microbe than human. And that's sort of how a lot of microbiome scientists like to like start their scientific talks with to blow people away. Well, it is working. Uh, <laughs> so um, what, uh, what are the kinds of things that those um, microbes and viruses and stuff are doing since I, I like how you said that the microbiome is not just like the things, but also the sort of like what the things are doing. Right, right. Um, you know, so from kind of from the microbes perspective, what they're trying to do is, you know, survive and have a stable environment into, you know, which they're continuing to survive. Ugh, same. And, <laughs> I know, right? It's just trying to be. <laughs> uh, and um, what's what that means, you know, so part of that is, you know, they need um, you know, food to survive. And so one of the main things that they do kind of symbiotically with us or, you know, they're co-living with us is um, uh, actually breaking down complex carbohydrates that we're eating in our diet. So um, that's, you know, what you can think of sort of in general terms as dietary fiber um, that actually doesn't get broken down by your own digestive system and your own cells, but actually makes it to the microbes because we don't have the functionality to really break those down. And the microbes actually are the ones that break those down and consume and subsist off of that. And then we actually can then reap the benefits of some of those um, sort of end broken down products. So some of those um, can reduce inflammation. Um, other ones just, um, yeah, seem to have different types of signaling throughout our body. And so it seems like this is part of that symbiotic relationship that um, developed. So, so as far as we know, like in talking sort of about like good bacteria and bad bacteria, there's also, I think of it sort of as like bacteria that like has always been there or is like supposed to be there. And as far mm -hmm. as we know, like humans, this like human microbe relationship is like, like 
super old. Like, super old. Yeah. Yeah. It tends to, you know, when you guys think you talk about the, the caveman, <laughs> thing, you know, our idea is that the, you know, microbes have, that we've developed with microbes, you can, you know, other animals have gut microbiomes doing similar things. And there's actually, you know, research in the field going into looking at the sort of coevolution between us and our microbes. So this is really a long, you know, a big part of our evolution is along with these symbiotic microbes. Sure. Um, so what are some of the things, I mean, do, are the microbes that we have inside our guts, um, are they affected by things we do? I assume they do since they're basically like trying to live in there, just trying to live. Yeah. Um, so are there, what are some of the things that we do that affect our microbiome? Like I would guess like eating is one and, but what are some of the other things that like, how do we affect our little community in there? Right. So yeah, definitely what we eat, um, you know, the uh, different ones of those uh, microbes can break down uh, different types of dietary fiber. So, you know, um, we're still teasing this apart, but, you know, you can imagine that as you eat an apple, there's like the the apple eating microbes that can then (laughs) proliferate into more microbes, um, you know, versus the chickpea microbes and things like that. Um, so definitely what we eat affects it. Um, you know, one that, um, you know, may or may not be obvious is, um, antibiotic use. So a lot of the antibiotics, um, we have are not, you know, these super specialized, um, um, drugs that will only target that, you know, that harmful bacterium, but can also have effects on, um, our microbiome. Um, well, I have to say my little disclaimer here. If you need to take antibiotics, definitely take antibiotics. If you have a bacterial infection, you need antibiotics. It's okay. Your gut microbiome will survive, but it does, you know, that is a trade-off there, but you know. And that's one of the reasons that, um, people say that you really shouldn't take antibiotics unless you really need them. Like, correct. because it, there is a, a consequence in, absolutely you know, in your microbiome makes sense. Um, what about like alcohol or coffee? Do we know anything about like what we drink? Yeah. So, um, it was funny cause I didn't actually know a ton about this, but in, um, sort of looking into things for this show, I was like, Oh, actually I don't know the effect of alcohol in the microbiome and, um, reading a little more about it. Um, there actually is, um, uh, some work looking into that and, um, there is some, uh, some research out there that shows that the composition does change, um, and, you know, we're still trying to figure out um, what things about the composition are necessarily good or bad. But the thing that we do know that happens that's bad is um, we actually get an increase, an increased level of permeability in the intestine. So like how much can um, sort of how much uh, the you know microbes and other things can actually go through the intestine and get into the body where they can cause inflammation and disease. So there's still that, there's definitely that negative effect from the alcohol consumption that's related to the microbiome. So, you it's know, drinking moderation. Effect, right? <laughs> Sorry? I said it's always a negative effect, right? Like I know. I want the study to be like, oh, they just become super, super great microbes. <laughs> super microbes. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in what you just said and um, what you've told me before, I know that this is an area of study that's really developing. I mean, that's why you're doing your research is because there's research to be done. So as we sort of like talk for the rest of the episode, um, I know, and I want our listeners to know that like, 
not all the answers have been discovered, but that there is, <laughs> <laughs> but that there are some interesting things and maybe some like signs pointing in interesting directions. Um, and yeah. I know that, uh, you'll do a good job of sort of like telling us like, we're pretty sure about this, this thing, like we don't know, but it's an interesting idea. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, what, what do we know about, or what do we know and what are we trying to find out about how microbiomes affect our health and how our diet affects our microbiome? Uh, that's like a big question, but. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, no, it's, it's a great question. And, um, I would say sort of the, a big thing that we know is that, um, the sort of the state of your microbiome is linked to the state of your health um, in many different ways. So, um, you know, sort of found in association studies, you can find when you study, you know, cohorts of people who, you know, have increased allergies or who have diabetes or pretty much most of the disease and conditions that you find, there have been links and associations with the state of the microbiome, meaning um, that there's something in common in the microbiome with those um, in that cohort of uh, disease participants versus um, healthy. So, in addition, we've seen that that is causal in, mo in mouse models. So you can actually take, you know, the microbiome from an obese mouse and put it in a skinny mouse and make that mouse obese. And so we know that it actually goes that direction, at least in mouse models. And I think that's a thing that has been popping up a lot in like pop science is this idea <laughs> that like there is something about certain people's microbiomes that is like, quote, making them fat or quote, like making them skinny. And I think that's yes. probably like, uh, like, drastic oversimplification trying to get to some sort of like thing that someone can sell you about diets. Um, yeah. but it, it does sound like it comes from uh, some science. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I think it probably is this extrapolation from the mouse models and the associations we see in humans, but you know, it's not like the science has been done yet where we've taken, you know, um, the microbiome from, you know, an obese person and put them in a lean person and then they became fat, you know, those people are actually looking into studies like that. And mm -hmm. we can talk about that, um, more later, but, um, that part isn't done, but it is sort of built on this suggestions that we see from mouse models and association studies. Mm -hmm. And it, it were, are you saying that like all sorts of stuff is found in these like association studies, like allergies and like immune stuff and like absolutely uh, are there so you even see like parkinson's whoa like, what? how did the microbiome affect <laughs> totally. parkinson's disease you know huh. so it gets pretty crazy especially for some of the neuro connections it's really wild <laughs> yeah yeah because we don't think about um our or i at least don't think about my brain as being related to my digestive system except for like yeah, telling me that i'm hungry know. Uh, but you're saying that it, it quite possibly is. Yeah. No, the, the like gut brain axis is like a subfield in the microbiome field. Ooh, gut brain axis would be a good name for a podcast or a band. <laughs> or band. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what kinds of questions are um, sort of, I, are people like you trying to answer about, you know, these questions? Or 
That was yeah. a silly way to say that. But what are what are you scientisty people looking into? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, um, uh, you know, so for my work specifically, um, I'm basically trying to test what our capacity is for changing the microbiome uh, using diet, and um, to basically to ultimately hope to decrease. Um, uh, levels of inflammation and sort of, um, you know, see, test essentially how big of an effect uh, we can get from changing diet, you know, using dietary interventions in humans uh, to change the microbiome that will decrease inflammation. So, and inflammation is bad because why? Um, it can, no, no, that's, that's a, that's a, a great question. It actually is, you know, is, is not obvious. Um, so, um, Inflammation basically kind of means activation of your immune system. And um, so that means sort of your immune system is being geared up to, you know, to fight and destroy and, you know, do whatever it needs to do to protect you. Um, so it is a good mechanism to have, for example, you know, if you have an infection or if you have an injury, things like that. Um, but the problem is um, when you're getting sort of indiscriminate or uncontrolled inflammation, meaning you're just getting activation just as you're going through your life. And uh, the problem with that is um, inflammation has uh, its roots in a lot of different um, uh, conditions. So um, inflammation can um, increase um, development of obesity, of diabetes, um, a lot of those different types of conditions. Um, and then they can also sort of in turn cause inflammation. So really what it is, is, um, kind of an immune process that starts off good, but kind of gets out of control. Yeah. If we're, if we're like running it all the time, then it's bad for our health. We want to only be running it when we need it for a specific actual exactly. problem. That makes sense. It's kind of like acute versus chronic stress. You mm -hmm. may have heard a little bit about, about that. Like you want to be able to mount that response to run from the tiger, but you don't want to go through every day as if you're running from a tiger. Right. Totally. So you're looking at like, if there are things that we can eat that will, um, please our little like conservatory of microbiome or yeah. of, uh, bacteria and things so that, um, we are sort of like narrowing the situations in which we're throwing out that like inflammation response. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, because basically, if the microbiome is in um, a healthy state, that it actually produces things that um, like decrease your inflammation, or so as part of that symbiotic relationship we're talking about. But um, in some cases, your microbiome really can be in sort of a unbalanced, unhealthy state, such that it's actually you know you're not getting those benefits, but you're also it's also causing inflammation. Um, so one way it can do that is it can actually start eating your intestinal mucus, um, sort of like lining of your intestine basically, because it uses that for food instead of dietary fiber. Uh -huh. Um, so there's those studies, uh, that are kind of scary of, you know, your microbes turning on you because you're not giving them enough food essentially. Ooh, well, we definitely don't want to do that. Do you have hypotheses about what we think might be a good way to use diet to like help out our little microbes? Yeah. Um, so what we're, we're kind of testing two sort of classes of, of foods right now. Um, one is um, looking at high fiber diets, essentially. So, you know, providing high levels and diverse levels of um, these complex carbohydrates, dietary fiber. So, 
you know, um, basically putting people on diets where they're consuming, you know, a lot of beans, a lot of fruits and vegetables, a lot of whole grains. So they're really getting that diverse source. Um, and then, and that's sort of, I would say probably if we had to bet on one, that's like our, our main guess from what we've seen, um, more in mouse models. Um, and then the other class of, of, uh, foods that we're looking at are, um, uh, fermented foods. So foods that actually have, uh, live microbes in them. So things like yogurt, sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, um, where you actually have, you're actually ingesting more microbes. Interesting. So I'm going to, I want to talk about that first group first because whole grains, beans, fruits and vegetables, that's sounding suspiciously like what everyone tells us to eat for our better yep. health all the time. <laughs> so you're saying that there's like yet another reason that we're supposed to be eating this stuff? Exactly. <laughs> and also why it's sort of less scary to give that as a recommendation to people because like worst case, they're on a healthy diet for other reasons. Right. It's not like if you're saying like, oh, the answer to everything is to eat like a stick of butter every two minutes. And it's like, well, right. if we're wrong, we're in trouble. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That makes sense. Uh, how, like, are we talking about like more than like any average person would eat? Like, am I, are we talking like right. kale for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Are we talking about like, you know, five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Like what do you have any right. sense of like what sort of magnitude you have to look at? Yeah. Well, so in terms of kind of average levels, so the kind of the average American diet, um, is bad. Has, uh, <laughs> yeah, has about 15 grams of fiber per day. Um, the daily recommendation from the, you know, those guidelines basically is 30 grams of fiber a day. Um, and then, you know, in our studies, we're kind of doing sort of this as high as you can go sustainably method and people in our studies so far have been getting up more around 40 or 50 grams a day, which has wow. been awesome. It's sort of like it kind of gamified it to say, Oh, how, you know, how high can I, can I get? <laughs> sure. Um, and you know, in terms of what that looks like, um, you know, I think if, sort of if you're eating along the lines that, um, you know, you and Daphne are recommending, um, you're going to be at higher than 15 grams a day. You probably will be, you know, closer to that, that 30 gram target. Um, but I do find that, um, uh, when I started, cause you know, of course, as I was being wrapped around all of, all of this stuff, you know, I started looking at my fiber and, <laughs> um, uh, there are definitely things that have a lot higher fiber that you wouldn't necessarily expect and then things that have lower levels. So things like like beans and chickpeas and lentils are, you know, have, you know, maybe maybe a serving of beans has like 15 grams of fiber. Oh, wow. Whereas like a serving of kale actually only has like, I don't remember, but around, you know, five grams or something like that. So, you know, it may be that in order to sort of be hitting higher levels of fiber, you would you know, just make sure, oh, I actually am going to try to incorporate a serving of beans every day, even if you kind of eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And in some ways is like comforting to me as a, an eater, because it's much easier for me, especially because like canned beans are like so easy so and fast. like high so quality. Cheap. Yeah. They're super yeah. cheap. It's like, <laughs> thank goodness we're getting like an accessible, affordable, yeah. not super complicated uh, nutrition recommendation. Absolutely. <laughs> that's great. Um, and that's a lot less intimidating to me to think like, okay, I need to get like a serving of beans, chickpeas or lentils in my diet every day than thinking like, Oh God, mm -hmm. I have to figure out how to get like 
kale into like every single meal and beverage. Um, right. No, being able to just like, just like throwing beans on a salad mm-hmm. um, as even just like the side of whatever your protein is can be, you know, a dish or main dish is can be a great way to just like, oh, I'm going to add a few more in. And then you also, you know, you get a little fuller and, you know, it's, it's great. And it's like you said, it's really cheap. And Trader Joe's has all of the different kinds of beans, you know, multitudes of diverse set of fibers. <laughs> totally. Uh, I don't know if you can speak to this, but one thing that I think happens sometimes if people like decide that they're really going to like make a change and like get a lot more fiber is that they have mm-hmm. like discomfort. <laughs> from... Oh yeah, definitely. Um, is that the sort of thing where it's like, um, if you just sort of build up gradually, it goes away. Or like if you, uh, just stick with it long enough, it goes away. Or are there some people who just like are going to be uncomfortable if they're eating more beans? Right. Um, <laughs> also I don't expect no, you to be a bean scientist. Big. But Sorry? I don't expect you to be a bean scientist, but anything, right. any thoughts you have? <laughs> it's a nice shorthand for what I am. Um, <laughs> so we're actually, we're measuring some of these effects and, uh, uh, you know, sort of discomfort responses uh, in the participants in our study. Um, and what we've, uh, what we've found with most participants is that, um, you know, some people may get some discomfort um, in the first couple of weeks, um, you know, with either little bit of, yeah, sort of GI distress or um, some extra farting, um, but uh, that that typically has been going away. Um, and for part of that, we've um, also for the studies, we'll do like a ramp up where we say, you know, slowly increase your um, fiber intake to try to mitigate that. And most people, you know, we do like a, you know, couple week ramp up and then like a six week maintenance. And most people during the maintenance have been, um, have said that they felt really good and, um, don't report very many of those symptoms. So, you know, it's not exhaustive because we've, you know, maybe had, you know, 50 people go through studies so far. Um, but I think mostly from that and then anecdotally, um, you know, and lab members and their families, et cetera, that mostly that it does tend to go away with most people. Um, if, if you do have, uh, challenges, um, and, but you're like committed to like, you know, getting your body used to it, if you're, do you have to avoid taking something like, you know, Bino or Gas-X or can you sort of take those things to like get you through the worst of it and then hopefully your body adjusts? Mm -hmm. Do you know? It's okay if you don't I don't really know much about like what those are doing. And so I'm like hesitant to to speak to it. Speak to your uh, doctors, everybody, if uh, this is an issue for you. But it, it is comforting to know that like, even if you're dealing with it, for a couple weeks, probably it's going to go away once your body gets used to it. Exactly. Okay, cool. Um, so now let's go on the other end and talk about the foods, the fermented foods, because that's something that's been like super trendy. Um, but I think a lot of people don't totally understand what they're actually supposed to be doing. Uh, <laughs> or, uh, and it sounds like we're still figuring out exactly what the effects are. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of funny because I think you do tend to hear a little bit more about the, you know, the the probiotics, the, you know, the live culture stuff more than you do about the fiber, maybe just because it's easier to like market like, you know, fancy yogurt than it is to like market those like Trader Joe's canned beans. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but really, I'd say um, the difficulty, or I get, okay, sort of backing up the 
the idea originally is that, you know, we want a, you know, diverse complex set of microbes. So can't we eat foods that actually have those microbes in them to sort of contribute to that ecosystem? What has been found is what's really difficult is to actually get the microbes that you eat um, to sort of take up residence in the gut. So, you know, just because you're eating a bunch of lactobacillus that comes in your yogurt, um, you know, if you're actually testing uh, the gut for the composition of your microbes, you might see that lactobacillus for a few days and then it'll go away. So it's not like the microbes you eat are just like becoming part of your core world. They're like a a tourist to your microbiome. They're not like buying a house. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But that being said, we have seen that um, there have been, you know, some, you know, health improvements in some of the studies by, you know, continually consuming some of these um, probiotic, um, you know, supplements or foods. And so there may be some sort of transient um, helpful effect, but we're still trying to, you know, I say we, the grand, the grand, you know, <laughs> microbiome scientists um, are trying to, to, you know, really uh, understand that and sort of measure, you know, if, are there other, there could still be other um, effects on your microbial ecosystem, even if the effect is not just like that microbe now lives there, it could still have other sort of health, healthful effects. Sure. So if, if you like it and it's not like full of sugar and, uh, you know, you're, it's probably fine. Like, but yeah, it's not necessarily like a known miracle cure. Exactly. I don't, we haven't seen that it's harmful. And yeah, like you said, watch, watch the sugar, but you know, it, it should be fine, but like def, definitely the fiber and yeah, couldn't, couldn't hurt to throw some <laughs> live microbes in there. <laughs> Um, what about, um, like I've seen more and more, even at like my average, like Walgreens or whatever, um, they are selling probiotics that you take just like as a pill. Is that sort Mm -hmm. of the same deal where like, we just don't know if they stick around in the microbiome afterwards? Yeah, that's, um, that's exactly the, you know, honestly for a lot of, you know, for example, even, even a lot of the yogurts that you'll eat will just be, you know, cultures that they'll add in that are the same, you know, from the pill that they will just even add into the yogurt. So a lot of times it's very similar and kind of the studies on it are sort of showing similar things, but we're actually also testing, you know, the difference between, you know, probiotic supplement versus probiotic foods, um, as well as looking at fiber supplements versus fiber foods, because, you know, honestly, um, if you can do some of it in pill form, I mean, it's, it's great to be able to incorporate those changes into your diet. But, you know, some of the populations we want to look at, like the elderly population, for example, it's really hard to say, oh, completely change your diet. Whereas like maybe some of the supplementation could at least help a little bit. Sure. I mean, that's probably true for all of us. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Interesting. So it seems like uh, jury's still out or science science is still out on uh, both of these things, both the... um, like higher fiber diets and the um, probiotic foods. But as far as we know, neither one hurts you. And we know that there are other things about the high fiber diet that already helps you. So make your decision based on that and keep your eyes peeled for more. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Um, Are there things that we should stop eating or doing because they are you know, either known to hurt our microbiomes or we suspect that they will hurt our microbiomes? 
Like, are there yeah. like, bad microbiome foods? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I think it mostly it mostly kind of goes along with kind of the ethos of the show of the adding things in versus the sure. taking things out in that way. Um, I don't, I haven't really seen. Um, you know, the actual direct, you know, effects of, for example, you know, processed foods as being harmful for the microbiota more that it's um, displacing some of these healthier foods. That being said, one, uh, one study that um, people often talk about, you know, that was, I think it was in nature. So it's some in a high profile uh, journal was actually um, something that I think uh, Daphne would be really excited about, but uh, the uh, effect of um, artificial sweeteners on the microbiome. Oh boy, don't get her started. <laughs> I know, I was like, I maybe need to uh, link, link the article. <laughs> but um, that actually that there was a show, I think it was that it was um, a microbiome mediated effect on uh, promoting glucose intolerance. Huh. Um, and that was a one-off study, but you know, it was, you know, peer-reviewed in a um, well-reflected journal by, you know, actually a group of scientists that I um, have worked with that I think highly of, but that being said, it is one study. So that's sort of one instance where I think there is, a, you know, a demonstrated harmful effect, but one study. Got it. And is that, I, I don't need to ask you to go too far down the rabbit hole there, but is that because <laughs> like the microbiomes like to eat sugars? And so if it's fake sugar, they like get starved out? Because I know we were talking about like starving our poor little microbiome. Right. Um, I don't know that they actually got that far um, sure. in the mechanism. I think it was just like, basically uh, what, how a lot of these studies go is, you know, we see, um, you know, among this group that have been consuming these sweeteners, we see this increased rate of glucose intolerance. Is this microbiome mediated? Let's take the microbiome, do the transfer into the mouse and see if we can kind of transfer that phenotype, and they could. And so it's like, in terms of what about, and that's sort of a big problem is like, what about the microbiome change such that it's caused that? And that's the part that's really hard for us to disentangle. And I'd say is a big area of the like, what we don't know part. Like, we don't know how to like, look at a microbiome and say like, that looks healthy versus that's going to cause disease. Interesting. And that makes sense because you're dealing with like a huge population in there. So like, you know, if it's, exactly. if it's Fred, the, um, microbe that is like causing a problem, like you could be in there for weeks and never see Fred. Uh, <laughs> Perfect analogy. Thank it. you. That's uh, what my degree is in is analogies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, cool. Well, um, one of the areas that I have heard a lot about um, the microbiome, and this is probably because I'm a 32-year-old woman, is um, in the context <laughs> of C-sections and breastfeeding. Um, I think there's a lot of interest in like how like the birthing process and feeding of baby process might be affecting the microbiomes of kids. Um, do you know, or can you tell us anything about sort of like what the research is on that and like what that looks like from the science side instead of the let's make women terrified side? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and hopefully, um, you know, it can uh, provide a little bit of, of, of comfort and <laughs> for people because, you know, this is really, um, you know, stressful. But um, yeah, so I guess if we I take those one at a time. Um, so in terms of C-sections, so basically what the observation was that you know, kind of largely, uh, was <laughs> freaking people out is, um, 
that uh, if you look at the um, sort of developing infant microbiome um, from babies that um, were birthed in a vaginal birth versus C-section, their microbiomes look very different. Um, if you're uh, born with a vaginal birth, you see a lot, you know, sort of unsurprisingly, you see a lot of the microbes that um, sort of are shared in common with um, the vaginal microbiome. Uh, which is its whole whole own uh, uh, topic, but um, so you would see a lot more similarities there versus with C-section. You tend to see from the mother more of like the skin microbiome organisms. So you know the microbiomes are looking very different at that start. Um, as the um, microbiome develops, there hasn't it hasn't looked like they're stark starkly different effects. You know on adults that were. Um, born by C-section versus um, vaginally in terms of what their sort of adult microbiome looks like. Um, you know, I'm not super familiar with the details of the research, but I think that for the most part, it's really those differences early in life, which, you know, may make a difference. Um, you know, we do, you, there are higher rates um, of babies born with C-section of, you know, uh, different types of um, you know, immune disorders that, you know, that that is something, and it could be um, in part mediated by the developing microbiome. Uh, one thing that's kind of encouraging, and that's something you should you know, definitely ask your doctor about, don't take my word for it, is um, that um, there has been shown to be like a partial, or actually I think maybe even full restoration um, uh, of the developing microbiome if you inoculate um, newborn infants with vaginal swabs. And so you actually can take some of the fluids from uh, the vagina and I can't remember which spots you put them on the baby, but, you know, kind of put them on them <laughs> and that that actually then the developing microbiome starts to look like the babies from the vaginal birth. So huh. like there is a way that even, you know, if, you know, if your health situation is such that you need to or, or elect to do a C-section, there could also be some ways to, to mitigate uh, those effects. So definitely look into that. Yeah, th definitely a talk to your doctor situation. Yes, because... <laughs> yes. I mean, again, like worst case, you like, you know, schmutz your baby a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trying to figure out how to formulate that. Right. Um, and then uh, is it sort of a similar um, issue with breastfeeding versus bottle feeding? Right. So breastfeeding is interesting. Um, so basically what people were finding um was that uh, breast milk contains um, uh, human milk oligosaccharides, which are basically sugars that are found in breast milk um, that actually couldn't be digested by like human infants. And so people were starting to look at that of like, oh, what's that about? And um, it looked like um, potentially those were, um, you know, again, kind of complex sugars that could be instead broken down by microbes and could, you know, be um, helping with sort of the development of the microbiome, which in turn helps the development of the immune system, et cetera. And um, those, um, those human milk oligosaccharides have also uh, been shown to help, you know, protect the baby from infection and sort of other kinds of benefits from the complex sugars in breast milk. Um, what I don't really know is, is I know then what people have been looking into is saying, you know, can we 
um, get the this set of um, HMOs and you know put them in formula and you know to try to get some of those beneficial effects from uh, breastfeeding. And I don't know a ton of um, sort of how well that's been working, but that's sort of what people are largely talking about. And I think um, a big part of it actually is sort of in the developing immune system component, which, you know, seems like there is an effect, but also, you know, people do do what they can, you know. Totally. Uh, yeah. And this would be a good place to say that, like, um, I think uh, sort of like half, half research on C-sections and breastfeeding gets used often by like just other women to shame women about the decisions that they are making about how to give birth to and feed their child. And often those decisions aren't decisions because it's like, look, yeah, this kid needs to come out and this is the way it's coming out or, (laughs) you know, uh, for whatever reason, like this is the way my kid needs to get fed. And so like, you'll hear it from other people, but hear it from us too, that like you and your family and your doctor are like making the decisions that are right for you do not take anything we've said here as like us judging your decision because there's a lot we don't really know. And like, exactly. You know, well, and that's with, um, and part of with, you know, as we're starting to learn about kind of the microbiome component is more providing, you know, hints at mechanism for why you do see, you know, potentially some, you know, increased rates of X, Y, Z, which is, you know, why people do, you know, try to, to do these things, but also, you know, everything, everything that we do, you know, comes with its own set of benefits and risks and you're, you know, um, it's kind of like when there is sort of the wave of, you know, everything causes cancer. Um, right. we don't want to get into this thing of like everything harms your microbiome because, you know, it's like, it's not that with the microbiome research that we're finding, oh, it turns out it has an even bigger effect. You know, it's still the endpoints that have been measured, you know, and been measuring this whole time. Um, those are still the same. Mm-hmm. Cool. So no panic, but exactly. more, more information is, is being discovered uh, yeah. and something you can talk about with your doctor um, based on your situation, if this is a situation that applies to you. Uh, exactly. All right. Now to a situation uh, that is at least somewhat more relatable, but also probably more gross, uh, is <laughs> that I feel like a place that I have heard about some of this research is fecal transplants, because that is like super compelling to journalists and people writing about uh, the microbiome. So what is going on? Yeah, so yeah, people love poop, and people (laughs) love talking about poop. Um, Our lab, a lot of uh, poop emoji themed um, paraphernalia in our lab at the uh, holiday Christmas party. But, uh, yeah, so, um, it's basically what it sounds like in that, um, uh, basically it's, you are, it's, you, you're consuming another individual's poop, um, typically in the form of a pill that's like to make it not gross, um, uh, such that the aim is basically to repopulate your microbiome with theirs. Um, and so basically why, um, or excuse me, the area where this actually has been used and really uh, works quite well is in the case of recurrent um, C. diff infection or Clostridium difficile, which is a 
um, a pathogenic bacteria that's um, um, oftentimes is hospital acquired um, and, um, you know, infects your GI tract. And um, a lot of people who get this infection, um, you know, can be cured by antibiotics, but in some cases it can be recurrent. So, you know, you'll um, clear it with antibiotics, then it'll come back and it's sort of this, you know, you're really sick uh, from it. And um, patients are actually finding who um, received a fecal transplant that it was curing recurrent C. diff at a rate of, I think, about like something like 90, 95%, some, you know, astronomically, you know, successful treatment. Right, which for something that can kill you is like amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, I'm not sure, I, I'm not, I don't remember the details of how she got over it, but I'm fairly sure that the comedian Tignataro dealt with C. diff in the hospital oh, okay. and has talked about it in her comedy. So uh, not Did a hilarious a topic in general. I, I don't know. Uh, but she is fine. So. We'll have to look into it. Uh, but so it, it is coming out of this sort of like really pretty desperate context that this thing that sounds like totally gross is actually like pretty amazing. Um, are there yeah. uh, guesses that this might be useful for other things? Yeah. So that's, I mean, you know, that's a big area of research right now because, you know, people as, you know, it's kind of sort of the logical next step of, oh, we're finding that all of these things can be, you know, determined by the microbiome. Can, if someone has that thing, can we give them someone's a microbiome that doesn't have that thing and then have that thing leave, you know, everything from obesity to allergies to, you know, everything. Um, and those trials are going on. Um, the there's been not a ton of success so far with testing uh, fecal transplantation for other conditions. Um, you know, I'm not familiar of all the studies, but really kind of for the most part, it seems like it's not really working and that um, it, uh, a big part of the problem is that um, the donor's microbiome doesn't seem to be, again, kind of like taking up residence in um, the gut of the uh, new individual and or the recipient individual, um, and now people are trying different things. Like, what if we do it in conjunction with, you know, first giving antibiotics, for example, like kind of clearing out the playing field and trying to test that? Or what if we give that microbiome and then also couple that with certain dietary changes? So also kind of giving the microbiome food. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so people are experimenting with those kinds of things, and hopefully they start to find um, answers there. I know some clinicians and, and researchers are hesitant around this because a lot of it, like, we don't really understand because we don't know, like, oh, that person's microbiome is healthy. Um, that can go into you. It's, like, you know, way less precise than if we know this is this exact thing that's happening from this exact mechanism. So in that way, it's kind of, it can be kind of scary because we don't really know what's happening. But, right. And yeah. we're, we're dealing with, um, like, a thing that like can be harmful, like waste, mm -hmm. human waste can be bad for you. Like we've seen mm -hmm. <laughs> that be true in a lot of kinds of diseases. And so, um, you know, it makes sense that like in a situation where the thing we're curing can kill you, like totally worth, uh, you know, the fact that, that this thing works, even though it like sounds kind of gross. Uh, if it's yeah. like, you know, uh, kind of cosmetic or, uh, you know, not a life-threatening thing. We want to be like pretty cautious about it. And this is a exactly. thing where I feel like I have read stuff about like 
uh, people in, you know, uh, uh, doing some DIY research, and that is oh, yeah. not don't recommended. Do <laughs> don't even talk to your doctor about it. Just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Do not uh, try to do your own fecal transplant. You are not qualified. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Cool. But yeah, that's definitely a thing that, yeah, no, don't do that. <laughs> As a scientist, does it make you just like want to bang your head against the wall? Or is it like, I don't know, these people are at least are curious, like, I commend them for their curiosity, but they shouldn't do that. Yeah, I mean, I think both of those feelings. Um, it, it it has been really fun. So I actually, I've, so I've only been um, in sort of the microbiome field for the postdoctoral part of my research. I started out um, just uh, in immunology. And you know, so it's really been, you know, the past uh, couple of years and that's actually been a really fun thing is getting to talk to people about it. And everyone kind of has, you know, their, their story about, about what they eat and their experience with their microbes and, and all that. And sort of that point of connection and interest, um, is really fun and, you know, getting, getting to do this podcast or, um, I love that people are able to engage with this topic. Um, you know, sort of just short of people kind of taking measures into their own hands a little, a little too fast, because I do think that's almost kind of one of those cases of like, Oh, you know, we heard, you heard this one thing and then now we're extending it to like, this is the answer or, you know, so, Science but overall I really slow. like, I love the enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Love the enthusiasm. Please don't do your own fecal transplants. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, that, that sort of leads in nicely to, uh, my uh, general question I have, which is like, how did you come to be doing what you do? How did you come to study immunology? And then what led you to the work you're doing now? Yeah. Um, so I started studying the immune system, uh, you know, actually at the beginning of grad school, I wasn't sort of sure what in biology I wanted to be working on. And, you know, I was just taking some of the sort of first year requirements. Um, and one of that, which one was about the immune system. And I just sort of got enamored by thinking about this system that you sort of have all of these different, you know, kind of moving parts, you know, all of your different cell types kind of all working together to kind of accomplish all of these different things with your body. Like that, that was your system that was, you know, both fighting off infection and, you know, healing the wound from that infection and, you know, sort of creating sort of all of these different scenarios and responding exactly right so that you mount a response, but then not too much of a response. And, you know, unfortunately we see that it can go wrong with different sort of ones of these conditions, but I just was so fascinated. Um, and so, and, you know, was able to uh, do work into, um, you know, figuring out how to monitor that in, in, uh, individuals. And so, you know, I loved learning about that. Um, and then actually during my PhD, I, um, got to know the professor that I'm working with now, um, just that he was in the same department. And, um, you know, when he would talk about the microbiome, I just, that was sort of always kind of my pet interest of like, oh, that just, that stuff is so cool. And, you know, we just always kind of think about it. And then towards the end of my PhD, uh, he was talking to me about how he wanted to kind of incorporate the immune system work that I was doing with some of the studies he was doing with the microbiome. And I was like, well, that sounds like the best project ever. Yes, I will work on that in your lab. <laughs> so it all kind of was serendipitous, but just sort of following, following my nose of what seemed the most cool and available to me. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Do you want to shout out that professor? 
Uh, yeah, so that's uh, Dr. Justin Sonnenberg. And yeah, at the end, I was gonna I was gonna plug his book because he wrote actually a book for um, uh, uh, the lay person um, about the microbiome, which is you know a good resource for people if they want to do you know sort of learn more about what we've talked about today. Written for um, non scientists. <laughs> yeah, normal people are trying to be more awesome. That's right. Well, um, <laughs> before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to make sure that we know about the microbiome or want to make sure that we're doing about our microbiome that we didn't get to talk about? Anything that we left on the table other than like all of the details and like anything deeper <laughs> than like a tiny inch below the surface? Um, yeah, let's see. I guess mostly just um, that it's... Um, it's sort of fun to get to think about how you do have this, yeah, little dome conservatory of, you know, this, 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 um, you know, this ecosystem of, of microbes kind of coming along with you and, you know, trying to live in harmony with you. And that that's sort of a, a fun image to carry around. And another kind of reason to think about, you know, when you are trying to make healthy choices for yourself, kind of thinking that you're doing it for you and your team of microbes is, kind of a fun uh, motivator, at least for me, but I'm, you know, a science nerd. So, but if that translates, <laughs> um, and then I guess one other thing that I had thought about, um, that I was, I've, uh, been reminded of when we were talking about, um, you know, things that you can do for your microbiome or things that have been, um, helpful with your microbiome, a kind of fun thing, uh, that has been shown is, um, that people growing up in households, um, with dogs, uh, tend to have, um, uh, you know, fewer allergies and immune conditions and that, um, some of that may be microbiome mediated that we actually share a lot of microbes with, um, by interacting with animals and interact. So, you know, it can be a fun reason or excuse to get a dog or at least hang out with your friend's dog or sort of going and interacting and engaging with animals. And that's kind of another fun thing to do. And you can think, Oh, I'm doing this for my microbiome. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm getting a dog. It's happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the the one thing I needed to tip me over the edge. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, so uh, if people want to find out more about your work or work related to these topics, either on the internet or in real life, like you were talking about a book, where should people look? Yeah. So, so for the, you know, um, in terms of following, you know, our lab's research, uh, for example, um, we consolidate a lot of, you know, sort of summaries of the projects we're working on, as well as links to, um, to our published research papers on our lab website. So that's, um, sonnenberglab.stanford.edu. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes. Link to it. Awesome. Um, and, uh, and so that, you know, kind of has more of the, the kind of hardcore science you take and, um, for, yeah, for looking kind of at primary source material, um, looking at sort of any of the journals in the, the cell family or the science family or the nature family. Um, you know, those aren't the only reputable journals, but you can normally at least, um, uh, trust the results, uh, in those. So for people who really want to be kind of digging into some of the published work, um, but then I think something that's really nice and something that, you know, a book that I, gave my parents to say, you know, here's a way to understand this if um, you're not coming from a science background is um, the book that uh, um, my um, my boss, Justin, and his wife, Erica, who also works in the lab, um, wrote together um, called The Good Gut. 
and so The Good Get by Justin and Erica Sonnenberg. And really, it's this attempt to kind of summarize the research where it's at, but for a um, non-science audience. And um, I think it's really approachable and it's fun and can learn sort of all about these topics we've talked about. Cool. Maybe we can have a Just One More book club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we totally should. Uh, awesome. Well, I'll link to all of those things on our show notes if people want to find them. Um, Gabby, thank you so much for being on the show and talking to us about our guts and microbiomes. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thanks for listening to Just One More with Joanna and Daphne. Our show is normally hosted by Daphne Yang and me, Joanna Schaaf-Lamb. We're produced and edited by me. Our theme music is by Hannah vs. The Many, who you can hear at hannahvsthemany.com. We'll be back next week. You can make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing to Just One More on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or whatever you use to listen to podcasts. For show notes and for help subscribing, you can go to our website, justonemorepodcast.com. Let us know what you think. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at justonemorepod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash justonemorepodcast, or you can email us at info at justonemorepodcast.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>